Well, we're moving on today in Revelation. Revelation chapter uh, 19. I'm going to do a fairly lengthy introduction first. Uh, I want to go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, we, we haven't even opened with prayer, have we? Uh, Father, we do ask you to bless us in our time together as we look at your word, as we sing praises to your name, as we remember the birth of your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you sent him to earth to die in our place, that we through faith might one day stand in your presence. And we rejoice in your love for us, Father, in your choice of us. And we just ask, Father, that you would come now and join us today as we celebrate through studying your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, scholars have estimated that there's as many as 300. I've heard 250, I've heard 300, and I've heard 350 prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ. Uh, and it depends on you know how you interpret certain verses and how you read them as to how you count that number. I do know that some years ago I took, I believe it was seven of them or 12 of them, I don't remember the number, but it was a small number of them, and went through a mathematician's probability that even those 12 or 14 or whatever they were be fulfilled. And the, the probability of one man fulfilling 300 of these prophecies is just very, very unlikely. It's something like 10, it's one in 10 to the 17th. So it's a 10 with 17 zeros after it. Uh, it's a phenomenal number. And it's very unlikely that one man would ever fulfill all those prophecies. And yet, they were literally fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to look at other prophecies today and how they are being fulfilled. But this time, we're not looking at the first coming. Today is really traditionally when we would celebrate the Christmas sermon. And this would be a celebration of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a babe, now you know when he comes back the next time, he's not coming back as a baby, he's coming back as a king. And this is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the day when Jesus calls for his horse. If you were to go, oh, I wanted to bring in this book. Uh, it's, a, it's an embarrassment in a way. I've had this book I know for 40 years, maybe more. Brand new, it was $4.95. That gives you an idea of the age of the book. It would probably be $18 now for a paperback. But this is called the Second Coming Bible. Have any of you ever had one of these, the Second Coming Bible? I was all fired up as, as a brand new Christian about the Second Coming of Christ. And I went out and bought the Second Coming Bible. And this has every verse in the Bible that relates to the Second Coming. It also has quite a bit of commentary. So the book is bigger than it needs to be. If you pulled out all the commentary, though, you still have somewhere in the vicinity of a thousand verses of scripture that relate to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish I could tell you I read all of that. I haven't. I've used it as a reference from time to time, but usually when I when I use this book, I just bring it in and show you how thick it is. You know, so it's supposed to impress you about how many verses relate to the second coming. The very first prophecy in the Bible about the second coming is in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And God, when he was speaking to the serpent and to the woman, he said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And this is the prophecy. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, if you've studied this for any length of time, you know that the prophecy is that Satan would bruise Jesus's heel and that Jesus would crush Satan's head. And that's going to happen next week, not this week. That prophecy will be literally fulfilled uh, in Jude, 
chapter 1 and verse 14. You can't find chapter 2. Book of Jude is all the way at the end. Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam. That's about as far back as you can go. And Jude writes about Enoch. Jude in the New Testament, brother of Jesus. Am I right about that? Brother of Jesus writes about Enoch in the Old Testament about this. He says, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, seven generations from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, behold, behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands, plural, of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds to which they have ungodly committed. Jude like that word ungodly. Uh, but the, the promise is all the way back in Genesis, all the way back to Enoch, that Jesus was going to come and judge the earth one day. There, there was a time when Jesus was in one of his uh, four or six illegitimate, illegal trials that the high priest demanded of Jesus in the name of God that he tell him who he is. Are you, I adjure you by the name of the, the living God, I think is what he said, are you, are you the Son of God? And Jesus' response was, Thou say it. And when we read that in the King James, we go, well, what is he saying? And basically what he's saying is, you bet I am. And then Jesus said these words, Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So this week we'll celebrate the 2026th anniversary of the first coming of Jesus Christ. 2,026 years ago he came. If you go from his crucifixion, he's been gone 1,987 years. And I don't know if you're like I am. I'm thinking, well, 13 more years, we're going to hit 2,000. That's going to be the magic number. But we don't know that. He came as a humble servant. He came to open the way to salvation for all of us who trusted in him. He came as a path. He came as the way. He came as the door. He came as the Lamb of God, and it was appropriate that he be born in a manger. It was appropriate, probably a cave more than more than a, a barn like we're used to seeing. But nonetheless, he was he was born in a place where lambs would be born, and it was appropriate. I was thinking, though, as Linda was reading that passage, uh, I, I wonder how that innkeeper is going to feel when he stands face to face with Almighty God and said, "You you, you didn't have room for my son." Uh, I'm just thinking it'd be a little a little terrifying. Jesus came to die for our sins. In his own words, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The, the, the prophecy in John chapter 3 is that Jesus himself understood that he would be crucified. That and that goes all the way back to the wilderness experience where the, the serpent was lifted up. I mean, we're talking about thousands of prophecies that are built into the Bible that make reference to this crucifixion of Jesus. It lifted up that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. You know, you often wonder, had Israel received her king there that first time, what would have happened? 
Would the millennium have just begun? And I've heard it speculated, yes. If Israel had recognized her king, the millennium would have begun 2,000 years ago, and Jesus would have stayed and reigned as a king. And then I think to myself, well, if Jesus would have stayed and reigned as a king, would my family have left Ireland and England and come to the United States? And would this and would that and would I have been born? And I, you almost think, you know, had it not been for Israel's failure, many of us might not have been here. I don't know if I can say that, not not knowing the mind of God and and knowing that during the millennial period, children will be born and some will be saved and some will be lost. So it's entirely possible that we might have been uh, we might have been in the world. But I often think had Israel not rejected Christ, I wouldn't be here. And so in a way, as Paul said, their falling is for our rising, you know. And I don't know, I'm sharing a lot of things I don't know here. I don't know if when we get to the millennium, if we're going to celebrate Christmas. I know we're going to celebrate Jesus, and I know we'll have great song services and great times of celebration, and I don't know if we'll go back and we'll worship following the pattern of the Jews with their seven feasts, which I almost imagine we will, and we'll probably celebrate the Passover, but I'm not exactly sure we'll celebrate Christmas. I don't know. Maybe there will be a birthday party for Jesus every year. I don't know. But I'm certain of one thing. We will celebrate the Lord Jesus forever, and we'll sing as huge groups of people gathered together and singing before the throne. Well, back to the sort of dreary part of uh, of Revelation in chapter 17 and 18, we saw how the world, uh, false world religions were destroyed in one fell swoop when God put it into the mind of the kings of the earth at that time, the Ten Nation Confederacy, to destroy the religious system. And that's chapter 17. And in chapter 18, we find that with a great judgment from God, out of heaven, a gigantic uh, crashing blow to the cities. Now, I put the word cities. That's not biblical. It's actually city, Babylon. But I, I just tend to believe it references all the cities of the world that are all tied up in this worldwide economic system. At any rate, at the end, at the end of chapter 18, the world has gone out of business. There's no more money, there's no more exchanging of goods, there's no more transportation of goods, there's no more growing of food, there's no more harvesting of food, and on and on and on you could go. The businesses are closed. Everything in the world is out of business at the end of chapter 18. And as I said before, if you'd like to go through it maybe sometime in January, I'd be happy to take you through those two chapters, but they are a little tedious. So while the, while the world is mourning the loss of everything it holds dear, the saved world is commanded by God to praise God. And in the beginning of chapter 19, which is where we're going to be today, there are four hallelujahs, and then there's a command from God to praise the Lord. Now, when Chuck Missler counts this, he counts this as five hallelujahs, but every time I count it, I count it as four hallelujahs and a command. Uh, verse 5, and the voice came out of the throne saying, praise our God. Now actually, if you wrote the word praise our God in Hebrew, it would be written hallelujah. So that's where Chuck's getting the fifth hallelujah. But actually the Greek says three words, praise our God. And it's written in Greek and not Hebrew. And the voice came out of the throne saying, praise our God, all ye servants, and ye that fear him both small and great. And verse 6 reads, And I heard as it were a voice of a great multitude. That's everybody in heaven now. 
all together, a great multitude, as a voice of many waters and as a voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now, you know that's the phrase that God handled in, when he, he was closing out his musical, The Messiah. And I can remember the first, the first time I ever heard the Hallelujah Chorus. I was outside of a Methodist church on Kent Island, and they were playing it through the, the speakers in the steeple. And I, I tell you, I'd never heard it before. And it's the most moving experience to hear the Hallelujah Chorus. It's just incredible. And that's really what's going on here. While the earth is mourning, heaven is rejoicing. And that's the point. The collective destruction of the world's anti-God system brings an enormous shout of praise from all the saints and elders standing around and watching these events. So we get down to verse 7, which I've taught you incorrectly through the years and just realized it this weekend. Uh, it's time now for the marriage supper of the Lamb. I've said in the past that we're going to be raptured out and we're going to be celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm beginning to think that I've read that wrong all these many years and taught you incorrectly all these many years. I have taught you that I believe that at that seven-year period that we're raptured out during, I believe that that is, in fact, a time where we're going to be interceding for the saints while Jesus himself is waging war. I believe that's still correct. But it looks to me like we're going to come back with him and he's going to set a table before us in the presence of our enemies, the 23rd Psalms, and we are going to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb where the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is going to gird himself in a towel and he's going to serve us a meal on, I guess, a gigantic table. I can't imagine how big this table must be. And he is going to serve us the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice. And let us give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. You remember that guy that busted into the, the wedding and he wouldn't accept the king's garments and he got kicked out in that parable of Jesus? It was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen. Your white robes will be given to you because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ that cleansed us. We will be clothed in his righteousness. The parallels in this passage are incredible. Uh, I lost my place. And to her were granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true sayings. Now in Jesus' day, weddings were different than they are in our day. And I'm going to take a few minutes and go through it. And I'm going to go through it because in the process of going through it, I'm going to attempt to parallel that to our spiritual experience and I want you to understand that as God set up these things in the Old Testament for our study, everything has an application to our spiritual lives today. So they were physical realities in their days, but they're spiritual realities in our day. In Jesus' day, the wedding ceremonies were much different from ours today. A contract would be agreed upon often years, often when the kids were just children. A contract would be arranged that Bob would marry Linda, and I might be nine years old, and that would have put her at four, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It would have been done by the parents. You know, and the Bible tells us we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. The arrangement was made for us before the foundation of the world, and it was the Father's choice. It wasn't ours. A contract would be agreed upon years in advance, and sometimes it would be arranged by the parents 
but not always. In our case, we're elect of the Father. The bridegroom and the bride would often live separate lives for many years, especially if I was nine years old. I'd have to live many years, right? Uh, for years. We've been apart from Jesus now for 2,000 years. Not quite. 1,987 years to be exact. But we were betrothed. We were engaged. But living in separate towns. Very common in that day. So Linda might have been from Philadelphia and I might have been from Maryland and it would have been years before I came up to her to get her. The bride always lived in expectation that one day her, crew, her groom would come and take her hand in marriage. Remember Jesus in John 14 said, I will come for you. No, no, uh, no internet, no text, no telephone. Just one day, your groom shows up with a whole bunch of guys, and now it's time. You remember Jesus' story? He said, do you want to be ready for that time when the bridegroom comes? And he talks about the parable of the virgins when five are foolish and five are ready. When the time is right, often determined by the groom's father. Remember Jesus said, nobody knows except my father in heaven. It's really, the parallels are remarkable. The groom would get together with a big party of people and he would go to the bride's home and he would take her back to the home that he had prepared for her. Remember he said, I go to prepare a place for you. <laughs> he would take her to the home he'd been preparing all these years for them to live in. Hopefully she was waiting, hopefully she was ready, and hopefully her bridesmaids were with her. Jesus warns us in that parable that it's possible that you're not ready when he comes. He would take her from her home and marry her. He said, I will come for you and I will take you unto myself. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. You know, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And then he ends it with, if it were not true, I would tell you. Then he would seclude himself with her for seven days. Well, we're going to be secluded for seven years in the tribulation period. For the friends, it would be a seven-day party. For us, it will be a seven-day, seven years of intervention and prayer. After seven days would come the actual marriage supper. And at the marriage supper, the guests would be provided for with garments. And that's what it says here. He will provide us with garments of white. And everyone invited to the wedding would enjoy a feast with the bridegroom. And there we will sit in the presence of our enemies, as David had said. I'm sure you see the parallels. Ephesians chapter 5 and 25 says, you are the bride of Christ. It says you are chosen by the Father. It said that you have made a contract with Jesus. It says that he's going to prepare a place for you. At the nod of the Father's head, he will come for you. And he'll take you to his home. Is exactly what would happen in an oriental wedding. For seven years, you'll be shut up with him and you'll be safe. You'll be safe while the tribulation rages below you. And at the end, you'll return with him to the wedding feast, which looks to me now as I read it, as if it's going to be right here on earth at the end of the tribulation period. And as I said, I think I've had that wrong these many years. Then the marriage supper of the Lamb, he'll set us down in front of the whole world and gird himself with a towel and he'll, he'll serve us his beloved bride. As John sees these events portrayed, remember he always says, I saw, I saw, I saw. As he sees this portrayed and he sees, envisions how this is going to be enacted and how this is going to work out, John is overcome. And he didn't quite know what to do. So not knowing what to do, John did what he always does. He fell down on his, 
his face and began to worship. Unfortunately, he fell down on his face in front of an angel, and the angel said, a simple word, stop it. You know. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, see thou do it not. Now that translation there is a little shaky. It's really just stop it. See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren and have the testimony of Jesus. Well, as I read that now, I realize this is a saved person. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And now we're down to the main event in verse 11. We're not going all the way through this chapter today. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he that said, you know, Israel was waiting for a king to come on a white horse. That's what they were hoping for. They're going to get what they were hoping for. But unfortunately, they missed him the first time he came. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Actually, the word crown there is diadems. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture, dipped, no, splattered with blood. And his name is called the Word of God. This is a literal fulfillment of Matthew 26. It's a literal fulfillment, and I didn't do the research, but it's the literal fulfillment of literally hundreds of verses when Jesus gets on that horse, climbs up there, and the armies of God come with him. It's certainly a fulfillment of Enoch's prophecy. You know, it's kind of silly when we get to the end of this thing. He didn't need the armies. He didn't need the horse. He could have just popped into Armageddon and said one word and the battle was over. So all of this is just fulfillment of prophecy. And it, I don't want to call it show. It's the glorious conquering return of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is Patton's Fifth Army coming through Paris. This is, uh, this is as big a parade as you will ever be part of. And I was happy to read recently, one of the commentators said, you know, I think the church is with him. You know, the, the angels definitely are with him, but the church is with him. Verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. <coughs> Everybody's wearing white. There's thousands upon thousands of them. So from a distance, it will look like a cloud. I don't think it's going to be a cloudy day, however. Uh, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. No, I don't think there's a metal sword sticking out of his mouth. I think it's talking about the power that he has when he speaks. Excuse me. This is the same person <coughs> who in the beginning stood and said, let there be light, and light came into existence. So it's talking about the power of his word, the power of his spoken word. Everything we know Everything we see, everything we touch, everything that we call reality came into being by the spoken word of Jesus Christ. And he's going to uncome them in the beginning into existing uh, in just a few minutes, but we're not going to go that far. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. These are all Old Testament prophecies, one right after another being literally fulfilled. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You know, we're not supposed to have wrath. We're not supposed to get even. God said he'll get even for us. This is the day. This is the day we've waited for. 
And he had on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you know, uh, Paul tells us that the day will come when he comes to the earth that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is indeed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Every aspect of this return is a literal fulfillment of Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. Now, I bring all that up to remind you that there were 300, and I'm taking the middle number, prophecies that Jesus Christ would come in that first advent. He would come as a baby. He would be, you know, the Lamb of God. He would die on a cross and on and on. He would be pierced. He would be crucified. All of these prophecies and every single one of them were fulfilled literally. And that means what the prophet said is what happened without trying to spiritualize it or make something that isn't uh, real. Everything that happened was real. I've often made the statement about how the sages of old, the old Jewish sages, would try to figure out what it meant when Isaiah said, uh, your king is coming to you riding on the foal of a donkey. And they tried to figure out what, because their picture was this king was going to come on a white horse with the clouds of heaven, and they could not figure out how he could be coming on a white horse with the clouds of heaven and ride a donkey into town, you know. Well, it was simple. It was two comings they were looking at. And the first time he came, he climbed on a donkey and he rode it into town. I mean, how literal can you get? A just regular, hairy, stinky, smelly old donkey. And he climbed up on it and he rode into town. That's literal fulfillment of Scripture. 300 prophecies literally fulfilled by one man. The impossibility of that had this not been God at work is impossible but this is God and nothing is impossible with God and Jesus fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy about him and what we see here in this second coming is the fulfillment of so many thousands of prophecies throughout the Bible that it's I don't even know how to get a count of it I tried this week to find out somebody who'd made a count and I couldn't find anyone that even would speculate how many there were and I tried to find in the beginning and back of this book if he had a listing where it could say one, two, three, four, five, and then I could go to the end and say, well, that's 223. He, he didn't count them, so I haven't found the number. Well, here it is. The king that Israel had waited for so many years. But they confused the prophecies of the first and second coming. Now there's a remnant of Jews hiding in Petra, protected supernaturally by God from Antichrist. that will come to a point where they're going to recognize who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And they're going to understand that they were wrong. And they're going to confess their sins. Jesus, when he walked out of the temple 2,000 years ago, 1,987 to be precise, years ago, uh, he said to them, You will not see me henceforth until ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. There's also an Old Testament prophecy that said Jesus will not return until they invite him. Until they invite him. And in Petra, on this day, Jews are going to be praying, Forgive us, Father, for not recognizing your son's first coming. And please, Jesus, come back again. And when they invite him to come back is when he's going to come back. And right now there's a remnant of Jews in Petra waiting and praying that Jesus will come. At long last, they'll see their sin. They will seek their forgiveness. And for that tiny batch of Jews, they'll all be saved. And they'll welcome him home. Now, we've known who he is since the day we first bowed our hearts to him. 
We know. We know who this Jesus is. And yet we too have waited for this day. Now it's going to be different for us because unlike the Jews hovered in the, in the wilderness and surviving by God's miraculous support, we're going to be up in the, the portals of heaven interceding for the saints and working towards the time. And when Jesus calls for his horse, it'll be time for us to dress up into our parade clothes and get in line. And we're going to come back with him. Uh, that's an exciting thing to think about. So as we celebrate the first coming this Christmas, I want to remind you this could easily be the last Christmas we ever celebrate. The next one, well, we'll probably have a birthday for Jesus every year. I know Mary's going to bake a cake, so I mean, no doubt about it. But, uh, but this could be the last Christmas we celebrate on earth. The next time we gather together, it might be with him in heaven. Let's pray. Father, it's our heart's prayer that every soul that hears this message has got peace with your son Jesus, that they've come to him and recognized like these Jews will one day that he is the Messiah. He is the only hope they have and will confess their sins and will invite him into their hearts. And I know as you changed my life that those many years ago in 1971 when I prayed, Lord, please come into my life and save me. And I know if anyone will pray that prayer and turn their heart to Jesus confessing their sins, their lives will be forever changed for the better. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.